Hey everyone, this is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the Med Prep to Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to medpreptogo.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts, you've used our free question bank, or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep to Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content. Okay, so we hit the last topic, everyone. We're going to start talking about valvular heart disease. Now, here's the slide. And if I keep it on there, I don't know. I just can't. I love the little beating heart, but it starts messing with my mind if I would stare at it too long. So let's switch the slide. So a couple things I wanted to say is that before we just go diving into valvular heart disease, there is certain things that are very, very important to understand when answering questions. So I put three bullet points here that what happens in real life? So many heart valve lesions progress slowly. It, and that leads to patients unconsciously living their activity um, in response to the heart disease getting bad. They don't even know they're doing it. They'll just maybe walk less, not go to the, wall, the mall as much, don't even notice it. And therefore, the key part in identifying valvular heart disease is getting a good history and doing a physical examination. So I wanted to mention that. For all patients with valvular heart disease in whom we are considering an interventional or surgical therapy, well, there is a multidisciplinary approach. And why am I mentioning that is because when you answer board questions, it's always just kind of like, well, what is the next thing to do in this patient? But in real life, we go to a multidisciplinary uh, meeting and all these people are there, the cardiologists, the surgeons, interventional cardiologists, and we get all their input to make a decision in these patients. So it's behind the scenes, it's a lot more complicated than you, than you think. Medical therapy, which is you know a quite common thing that we use on board exams, although it's great for symptoms, has not, in the bolded red, been shown to prevent progression of valvular heart disease or improve long-term survival. So I just wanted to mention these three important pearls before we go jumping in to board review. So let's talk about the big four, and which is gonna be aortic stenosis, aortic regurgitation, mitral stenosis, and mitral regurgitation. On your board exams, they are not gonna be asking very limited questions on right-sided valvular disease. They're not going to talk much about the tricuspid valve or the pulmonic valve for the reasons that they're not common 
And if you do have issues with the right side of the heart, it's probably going to be something congenital, or unfortunately, you may have done IV drugs and may have got endocarditis and damage to the valves on the right side of the heart. So historically, it is the left-sided valvular lesions that we'll be talking about the most. So let's start off with talking about aortic stenosis. So normally, between the um, aortic, between the left ventricle and the aorta, there is a very small pressure gradient. Because remember, in normal physiology, things go from high pressure to areas of low pressure. And when we talk about the main difference between the aortic valve and the mitral valve, the thing is, the mitral valve has what? It's going to be papillary muscles, chordae tendinae. Even though both valves are going to open based upon a pressure difference, remember the mitral valve also has these papillary muscles and chordae tendinae. So what happens is, is that if there is a narrowing of the valve, then that pressure gradient is going to become increased. So the magnitude of the pressure gradient is determined by the severity of stenosis that, uh, that is occurring. So when we talk about this pressure volume loop here, I am not going to be giving, you know, a basic science lecture, but I do want to say that the normal pressure volume loop of the left ventricle is going to be in the gray. And when we look at the shaded red, why is it going up is because aortic stenosis commonly leads to a hypertrophic left ventricle a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And if the left ventricle is hypertrophic, it's going to be non-compliant. And remember, everyone, what is the definition of compliance? It's going to be talking about pressure and volume. So you need to have big changes in pressure for little changes in volume. So anytime you're going to be non-compliant, the graph is going to shoot, the diagram is going to shoot up. So big changes in pressure, little changes in volume. And we're showing right here in this bottom diagram, look how high left ventricular pressure has to be to blast the blood through the aortic valve and going to the aorta. And that's what it's showing down here. So when we talk about aortic stenosis, if you're to ask me, what is the most common cause? You know I'm going to say calcifications because patients are getting older. If you have mitral uh, aortic stenosis at a younger age, and of course, I would say a bicuspid valve, but look at the age around people will get symptomatic from a bicuspid valve. It's not that young. It's going to be somewhere between 40 and 70 years of age. And when we talk about what is the valve going to look like, normally the aortic valve is going to be a tri-leaflet valve. And you can see the tri-leaflet valve right here. And when you have a bicuspid aortic valve, it's going to look like this. So once again, this is going to be the aortic valve when it's going to be normally open, tri-leaflet. When it's closed, it's going to look like this. On an echocardiogram, we call this the Mercedes-Benz sign. When it's a bicuspid valve, it's going to look like this when it's closed. When we talk about the signs and symptoms of aortic stenosis, well, I can't say a lot of these are going to be very unique to aortic stenosis, but you know I always think about the big three, which is going to be what? Chest pain, CHF, and syncope. Chest pain, why? Is because the coronary arteries exit the aorta. So you can imagine if the coronary arteries get around 5% of cardiac output, if you're stenotic, you're not getting all that 5%, you can get a lot of demand ischemia. Also, when we think about syncope, think about if you have a young individual with syncope on exertion, maybe think about something like hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, HOCAM, 
But if you're older and you're having syncope on exertion, you may want to think about what? Aortic stenosis. Why? Is because what percent of cardiac output goes to the CNS? 10%. If you are stenotic, decreased blood flow, therefore you could probably be lightheaded and get, uh, and get syncope. And of course, the last is CHF. Why? Aortic stenosis is highly associated with left ventricular hypertrophy, which is an etiology of CHF. So when we talk about um, some of the physical exam findings, they love to mention the murmur and they love to talk about the pulse when we talk about valvular heart disease. When we talk about aortic stenosis, I always start off to say, what type of murmur is aortic stenosis? Is it systolic or diastolic? And the answer is, it's a systolic murmur. And how do you describe the murmur? You know what I'm thinking about, crescendo, decrescendo. And if you have a late peaking murmur, it probably means it's a very severe stenosis. When we talk about the pulse of someone who has aortic stenosis, Classically, when we read our textbooks, they say it's going to be a weak pulse, parvus, a late pulse, tardis. And of course, when we describe it, we say it has delayed carotid upstroke because usually we have aortic stenosis, the murmur radiates to the carotids. So these are important things to know. Anytime we talk about the heart, if they were to ask you, what is the best first initial test, you can never go wrong by getting an EKG. I just wanted to mention that. Of course, when we talk about valvular heart disease, we want to confirm what the valvular lesion is. It's going to be an echocardiogram, a transthoracic echo. There's no questions asked. You know, when we talk about aortic stenosis, if we decide to do surgery, if this is any valvular heart disease and we're going to do surgery, strongly consider doing a cardiac catheterization because you know what I'm going to say. You would feel really bad if you were to crack someone's chest, fix the valve, and oops, you have triple vessel disease. So it's very important to evaluate the, uh, the carotids and, of course, to uh, have a preoperative evaluation. So when we talk about aortic stenosis, I got to tell you that it's sometimes difficult to treat medically. You know, if someone, if I were to treat medically aortic stenosis, I mean, commonly we'd use loop diuretics, you know, because these patients could tend to be volume overloaded. But depending upon the degree of stenosis, if you give too much diuretic, your blood pressure could tank. Then next thing you know, you're giving them fluids, fluids, fluids back, and next thing you know, they're fluid overloaded. So medical therapy is, you know, not tolerated too well, but that really depends on the severity of the valve. But that's why we have to think about what are other things we can do if they're refractory to medical therapy. And we'll talk about this. You know, one thing I will mention is, is valvuloplasty a good option, meaning that you put in a balloon in the valve and you dilate? Probably not, because when we talk about aortic stenosis, what is going to be one of the most common etiologies is calcifications. You know what I mean? And I always just think to myself, do balloons work good on rocks? The answer is no. So I'm not saying it's wrong to attempt a valvuloplasty, but we usually don't answer that in the board exams because it usually doesn't work. Then in the olden days, we'd be like, all right, if we can't do a valvuloplasty, then it's time to crack the chest, you know? But remember, these patients with aortic stenosis are pretty old. And I don't think many patients are gonna be excited about cracking the chest, you know what I mean? So, you know, this is why there are new things that we could offer for aortic stenosis that I'm going to get to shortly because I can tell that you guys are excited. Uh, but I do want to talk about this table down here when we talk about 
classification of aortic stenosis severity. What are the three things that we look at to classify severity? It's the velocity of the aortic jet, the velocity. And of course, we're gonna get this value based upon uh, doing a Doppler when we do a transthoracic echo. We wanna know the mean gradient between the left ventricle and the aorta. And we also wanna know what is the size of the aortic valve. And there's a lot of numbers here, and I gotta be honest with you, it's very difficult, if nearly impossible to memorize. But the ones I've seen the most on the board exams is talking about the area of the valve. And on boards, they're not gonna give you an ambiguous, ambiguous area that you're like, what was that? Was that normal? Was that mild? It Remember, less than one centimeter. If you have one centimeter or less, that's pretty, pretty bad, okay? So let's ask you a one-liner question. What new, and I hate saying the word new because these questions get old so quick, procedure is for patients who are too high risk for traditional aortic valve surgery? This is what I was hinting at. There's medical management that many people don't tolerate depending on severity of the valve. There is valvuloplasty, which probably won't work because balloons don't work on rocks. There's surgery, which many people are not candidates for just based upon age and comorbidities. But now we have this middle ground right here. And what is the procedure I'm talking about? You said it, it's a tower. And so when we talk about a transcatheter aortic valve replacement, wow, it's almost been 10 years. You know, this is FDA approved. And this is a bioprosthetic valve mounted on a metallic frame that is implanted over the native aortic valve under fluoroscopic and echo guidance. So we don't take out the other valve, it's still there. We just put it right on top of it. And why can we do this for the aortic valve? Because there's no papillary muscles or chordae tendinae. The valve just opens and closes based upon what? Pressure difference. So I don't want to make it sound too easy. It's not, you know, it is tough to put in, you know, and there's a whole workup that they do. They get a very, you know, specialized CT scan measuring, you know, the aortic valve to see if they're good candidates for it. So there's a lot of backstory to it. But for your board, you should understand uh, when to even consider offering this type of device. So let me ask you this question. Does the Taver transcatheter aortic valve replacement, does it improve survival? That's always the big question. And the answer is yes, it does. So it's called the partner trial. There's always the name of the trial. Placement of aortic transcatheter valves partner trial. And it really only shows survival in bullet points, patients who could not undergo surgery and underwent transcatheter replacement had a significantly better survival than treating them medically. So once again, survival in the patients who, are, who should get surgery, but they weren't, and they only got survival when they were compared to what? Medical management. Good. So let's go beyond the pearls. 68-year-old man is evaluated for a newly diagnosed cardiac murmur. He is active, he swims, he jogs. Damn, at age 68. Uh, medical history is otherwise unremarkable, and he takes no meds. On exam, he is a febrile, normal, tensive, non-tachy, non-tachypnic. Cardiac exam reveals, uh-oh, a late-peaking systolic murmur. Late-peaking, all I needed the words were crescendo, decrescendo, located in the right upper sternal border, which is where we usually kind of like auscultate for the aortic valve. And, uh-oh, paradoxical splitting, which means that the aortic valve closes what? 
second. Usually it's the pulmonic valve that closes second. What causes that? Aortic stenosis. So I love the buzzword term, getting into it. So they do an echo to figure stuff out and it shows a normal left ventricular uh, systolic function. Good, the aortic valve has an area of 0.8 centimeters. So and they have a mean gradient of 44, a peak gradient of 53. I'm like, yeah, I don't really remember what these values should be, <laughs> you know? But what I say is the classic one, it's gonna be the aortic valve, less than one centimeter, that is bad. Which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient? So think about the patient, think about the choices. So this is a 68-year-old, and he is swimming and jogging, and it had some findings on physical exam that led to an echo, and yeah, I mean, this is severe aortic stenosis in an asymptomatic person. So which ones don't seem that good? Number one, I'm never really going to pick valvuloplasty for the aortic valve because it's pretty much not going to work. Boom, A. Um, is it time to crack the chest? One minute he's jogging and swimming, next minute I'm cracking his chest. That seems kind of mean. Let's goodbye to C. It really comes out in an asymptomatic person. Should we taver this guy? Meaning that, hey, you know what? I really, it's really severe. You're asymptomatic. I feel bad giving you surgery, but let's just pop this valve in because let's pop this valve in, you know? And I can't pick D. You know why? What did I teach or teach you, taught you, showed you the evidence that the partner trial was people you actually do want to do surgery on and they're not surgical candidates. This guy is totally a surgical candidate, but we're not going to offer it to him. Why? Because he's asymptomatic. You know what this guy needs? Follow up at this time. So the answer here is what? B. Boom. Don't be for boom. All right. So let's do, I think I have one more. Beyond the pearl. 37-year-old, wow, this is young woman is evaluated for exertional dyspnea. She noticed mild shortness of breath with significant exercise several years ago. And I guess uh, she had this, but she kept going. What did I say in one of my opening slides? People just do these self-lifestyle changes because they just do, they don't even realize something's going on with their valve. She is still active and she's had to progressively decrease the amount of exercise she was able to do because of her symptoms. She has no other health problems, takes no meds, and no known drug allergies. On exam, normal tensive, non-tacky, non-tachypnic, cardiac exam demonstrates a three out of six crescendo, decrescendo systolic murmur, right up the sternal border, delayed carotid, carotid upstroke. So this is all AS, you know. Transthoracic echo demonstrates normal systolic LV ejection fraction of 60%, which is good. There is mild LVH, because that's the classic cardiomyopathy you're gonna get. And because she's young, I did assume this is gonna be a bicuspid aortic valve. Uh, valve has a mean gradient of 42, whatever, I can't remember numbers, but look at the valve area. It's less than what? One centimeter. So you know this is severe. So what's the combo? Young, symptomatic, severe AS, what's the choices? Which of the following is the most appropriate management? Is this gonna be balloon? The answer is no, we don't balloon these things. Is in someone that symptomatic, should we start drugs? The answer is no, because back to my opening slide, do drugs help out with survival, change the progression of disease? The answer is no, no, no. Uh, and for aortic stenosis, I pretty much would not use an afterload 
uh, reducer, maybe for a regurgitant lesion like uh, MR or AR, but no. Um, so it really comes down to these bad boys over here. So the question becomes, should we do a Tever? You know, it's less invasive. You don't have to crack the chest. She's young. Or should we just crack the chest? So once again, refer to the partner trial. We only do TAVR when they're not surgical candidates. And she's going to tolerate this well. She's young. I would do surgical aortic valve replacement, or at least offer it to her. For the boards, I'll pick C. Let's see. Boom. There you go. Right answer. So let's move on, move on. So now let's talk about aortic regurgitation. So before we go into pathology, let's talk about normal physiology. So once again, aortic valve opens and closes based upon a pressure difference, meaning that the left ventricular pre uh, pressure <coughs> has to be higher than aortic pressure for the valve to open. And the amount of blood that's ejected, the amount of volume ejected from the heart is known as what? Your stroke volume. And under normal conditions, you know, around 50 to 70 percent of the blood in the left ventricle is ejected out of the left ventricle. That's where ejection fraction is. What percent of left ventricular end diastolic volume is going to be what? Ejected. We don't throw out all 100 percent. Some is still going to be in there. So it's usually going to be around 50 to 70 percent. Then, of course, after the left ventricle contracts, which is known as systole, left ventricular pressure is going to decrease. Then all of a sudden what happens? Left atrial pressure is higher than left ventricular diastolic pressure. And because of the pressure difference, the mitral valve will open and blood starts to fill the left ventricle again. And at the end, aortic valve will close and this cycle goes over and over again. But when you have aortic regurgitation, this is going to be the pathophysiology the aortic valve is not able to completely close. And that is the key word right here. It can't completely close. Because if I do show you a pressure volume loop, you'll notice that it's not gonna be nice and square. And you'll see what I mean on the volume axis because you're never gonna have anything that we call isovolumetric. There's no gonna be isovolumetric contraction. There's no isovolumetric relaxation. And you'll see what I mean. And this happens when you can't fully open or close either the aortic or uh, mitral valve. And what happens in the physiology is during systole, because remember uh, what type of murmur is aortic regurgitation? It's a diastolic murmur. So during diastole, what's gonna happen is that blood is gonna regurgitate back into the left ventricle. So when we talk about that, the, one of the key findings when we talk about um, aortic regurgitation is how do we describe the pulse of someone with AR? And I'm not going to answer it just yet. I want to switch the slide because that's the question I'm going to ask. See if my memory serves me. There it is. What is a bounding and collapsible pulse? So those are the buzzwords that describe the pulse of someone with AR. So bounding means it comes out very, very strong. And why does it come out very strong? Is because you have increased preload, therefore you're gonna have a high stroke volume and high cardiac output, it's gonna come out strong. So, but why is it collapsible? It's because during diastole, where's all that volume gonna do? It's gonna be sucked back right into the left ventricle. So think about a bounding and collapsible pulse. And remember, 
because it comes out very strong and then all of a sudden it gets sucked back in, what happens to your pulse pressure? It widens. So one of the buzzwords on the vignette is that there's a widening of the pulse pressure, then think about in the right clinical setting, AR. So remember, what's our normal pulse pressure? It's systolic minus diastolic, 120 minus 80 in most people, should be 40. But if you have uh, aortic regurgitation, your diastolic value is gonna be dropped as all the blood is going back into the left ventricle. You're gonna have a widening of the pulse pressure. So now it's not gonna be 40, it's gonna be 60, it's gonna be 80. So when you feel for the pulse pressure, it's gonna be strong, it's bounding. And all of a sudden, boom, volume gets sucked back into the left ventricle, it's collapsible. So that's why these are the classic things when you wanna draw things out. You could look at here, you could, this is the, the left ventricle pressure. You can see it in the blue and the green. Look what happens to diastole when you have aortic regurgitation. It drops, the diastolic pressure drops in the aorta, boom. And then I mentioned that if I were to draw a pressure volume loop of the left ventricle, if someone has aortic regurgitation, remember what happens to the left ventricle? It dilates because all that volume is going back in during diastole. And because all this volume is always going back in the left ventricle, it becomes dilated, which means it becomes very, very compliant, which means that it can hold more what? Volume. And therefore, it shifted to the right. And notice how it's not a straight line on the volume axis because since the aortic valve doesn't close all the way, you don't have isovolumetric anything. No isovolumetric contraction, no isovolumetric relaxation. And I put this here because, you know, when we think about aortic regurgitation, um, in the olden days, I hate saying that, you could actually look out into the audience and see who has chronic aortic regurgitation because they keep doing things like this. Bopping their head, we call that the musset sign, which is head bopping in time to the heartbeat. You could look at their pulse and you could see what? You could see pulsations. You could auscultate over the femoral artery and hear trabal sign was that pistol shoot sound. Nail bed pulsations called quick knee sign. So there's so many uh, different buzzwords, you know. That widening pulse pressure we talked about, if you auscultate the carotids, it's called, um, if you feel for the pulse, it's called the Corrigan sign. But if you auscultate it, it sounds like a, a, a water hammer. <laughs> and everyone asks me, what does a water hammer sound like? And I'm like, I don't know. But for some reason, everyone associates water hammer and and regurgitation. But the truth is, is that we don't, you know, um, hear or see many of these signs anymore because everyone gets an echo. So it's very historic. So we don't get to hear a lot of the chronic findings of aortic regurgitation as much. Another name for the diastolic murmur that's associated with AR is called the Austin Flint murmur. I just wanted to mention that. And as I said already, we don't see a lot of chronic AR that much anymore. I did list many things that cause chronic AR over here. I'm just not going to read it to you. But on your board exams, we do see a lot of acute AR. We see that from aortic dissection. We definitely get questions what happens after myocardial infarction, sometimes trauma, and even endocarditis. So what about this 47-year-old man is evaluated during a routine exam? He has no symptoms. Medical history is significant for a bicuspid aortic valve. He is not taking any meds on exam. He's normal tensive, 
not tacky, uh, not to give Nick, cardiac exam reveals a, a one out of six diastolic murmur at the left lower sternal border. And remember everyone, rules of thumb for murmurs on the boards, you know, a one or two out of six systolic murmur, really don't worry too much about it. Diastolic murmurs are no good. You always want to evaluate diastolic murmurs. I just wanted to mention it. Uh, echocardiogram shows a bicuspid aortic valve with moderate aortic regurgitation. Normal LV systolic function in normal LV chamber size. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? And let's look at this right here. So I did mention that when we talk about regurgitant lesions, maybe that's, those are the ones where I would reduce the afterload. But remember back to one of my first slides for rules for clinical management and board exams, even though both of these can reduce uh, the afterload, medications do not change the natural history of disease. They don't help out with survival. And he's asymptomatic to begin with. So I probably wouldn't do D and E. You know, nowadays we don't do endocarditis prophylaxis for for anything practically. <laughs> you really have to twist my arm to do it. Um, so it's not going to be, and we definitely won't do it for this person, so it's not going to be C. So it really comes down to in an asymptomatic person, do you want to replace the aortic valve or reassess in one year? And I you think I think you guys know what the theme is going to be. You know, these are real serious procedures, cracking the chest and doing these things. If they're asymptomatic, you're going to do what? Nothing. The answer is going to be what? B. Good. So let's talk about the mitral valve. Let's talk about stenosis and let's talk about regurgitation. So here is a nice picture. Here's the left ventricle. Here's the left atrium. And here is your mitral valve that has two leaflets, the anterior and posterior leaflets. Here's going to be the chordae tendineae and papillary muscles. So when you talk about mitral stenosis, mitral stenosis, here's a pressure volume loop of the left ventricle. The problem is you're not filling what? The left ventricle, you're just not filling it. So which way are you gonna shift the pressure volume loop? To the left. So I just wanted to mention that to be consistent. Um, one of the interesting things about mitral stenosis and why they ask on the board exams is because unlike AR, AS, and MR, all those are gonna have cardiovascular complaints, dysmionic exertion, shortness of breath, you name it. But mitral stenosis in the olden days, I hate saying that, you know, would have some non-cardiovascular complaints and that's what made it kind of unique. So what are one of these non-cardiovascular complaints that mitral stenosis can have? Dysphagia. Yep. Um, why do they have dysphagia? Well, what type of study is this right here? And don't say chest x-ray. <laughs> it's a what? It's a barium swallow. And notice this is the left atrium right here because the left atrium is the most posterior part of the heart. And what is it squishing up? Squishing up against the what? The esophagus. And that's why they get what? Dysphagia. So this is a normal lateral view of a chest x-ray. Notice how where the left atrium should be. And you can see how dilated it is over here. So based upon this x-ray, you know what's another kind of a non-cardiovascular complaint you can get with MS? It could be chronic cough, and hoarseness. Why do patients get that if you have severe mitral stenosis? That's right. It's going to compress a nerve that's sitting right in front of the esophagus known as the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And now I have to ask you a memorizing question. What is the name of the syndrome where you have hoarseness and cough secondary to severe mitral stenosis? 
And that syndrome is called Ortner's syndrome. So don't stress it. It's just a memorizer, and I have the answer on the next slide. Um, other uh, unique things that mitral stenosis can do that are not cardiopulmonary in nature, you can get some stroke. Why? Because they're predisposed to atrial fibrillation, and one of these you know, clots can form and knock off there. And sometimes you can get hemoptysis if it's really bad. Why? Blood's going to back up into the pulmonary vein, to the pulmonary capillaries, you can get some hemoptysis. So I just wanted to mention a few things. So I kind of stole my own thunder, meaning that here are a lot of the things we mentioned as far as symptoms. And of course, once again, symptoms is based on how severe is a stenosis. So people can be asymptomatic on one end of the spectrum. We mentioned thromboembolic events, secondary to AFib. And on that note, if I forget to say it, what is the worst combination you could have in the patient is atrial fibrillation and mitral stenosis because filling of the left ventricle will already be reduced based on how severe the mitral stenosis is. And if you're an AFib, you can imagine what is your, you know, atrial contracting at, what, 200, 300 beats per minute, you're almost going to get no filling of the left ventricle. So it's very important to really treat the AFib or treat the mitral stenosis if you have both. So these are going to be some of the symptoms of MS. So no one should be surprised that people with MS, if it's severe, can get pulmonary hypertension. This image is not a chest x-ray. It's a pulmonary angiogram showing how plump the pulmonary arteries are on both sides. When we talk about buzzwords, remember mitral stenosis is a diastolic murmur. And the classic sound we listen for is the opening snap. And I think most of us just think of it as if you're very stenotic, it just takes a lot of pressure in the left atrium to snap the valve open. So these are a couple buzzwords I just wanted to mention. So when we talk about therapy here, of course, you could do medical therapy. You know, for stenotic lesions, you could always consider doing loop diuretics. You know, uh, if they have atrial fibrillation, strongly consider anticoagulation. You know, you definitely could evaluate uh, their CHADS to score. You could definitely uh, calculate the has bled score for bleeding risk. A Cox Mace procedure is if they actually are going to crack the chest open. It's a procedure that will kind of destroy irritable foci in the left, in the atrium, if they're going to be, you know, having surgery anyways. And of course, if they're going to be having surgery, you don't want to, you definitely want to consider doing a coronary angiogram first. Um, doing a balloon valvuloplasty of mitral stenosis is a very reasonable thing to consider before going into a, a open heart surgery to correct the valve. Um, once again, like in any of our valve lesions, in reality, they go to a, a board where they have a multiple, a multiple disciplinary discussion of what would be the next step. So last but not least, let's talk about mitral regurgitation. So when you think about MR, most common etiologies, well, you could have chronic causes and you could have acute causes, you know, but we don't see as much chronic anymore. Everyone gets an echo. For acute causes, it's important you think about what MIs, you know, myocardial infarction. And we did have a question about you know, what are the mechanical compl uh, complications post-MI that occur around three, three to five days afterwards? Some of those things, including VSD, free wall rupture, can also include what? Mitral regurgitation. There are many things that can definitely do it. Dilated cardiomyopathies commonly cause 
mitral regurgitation. So keep that in the back of your mind. So when you think about symptoms, well, it really depends on how severe the MR is going to be. But it shouldn't surprise anyone that you'll have some generic symptoms like other valvular diseases, such as nonspecific dyspnea, orthopnea, exercise intolerance. So if they're going to talk about describing the murmur, remember this is a systolic murmur, and it's going to be holo or pansystolic, and it's going to radiate where? To the axilla. If, let's do our last one together, if I were to draw up a pressure volume loop, what's going to happen is that the left ventricle is going to be volume overloaded. And because the left ventricle has so much volume, it becomes dilated. When it becomes dilated, uh, it becomes very, very compliant. And when with the left ventricle being very compliant, it's going to be shifted which way? To the right, just like aortic regurgitation. And once again, the mitral valve doesn't close all the way. It's a regurgitant lesion. So you're never going to have anything that has the words isovolumetric. No isovolumetric contraction, no isovolumetric relaxation. So it has this curve right here. So you know what? This actually looks very similar to what? Aortic regurgitation. And the only way you could distinguish which one is AR, which is MR, is by what? The murmur. If it's going to be mitral, systolic. If it's going to be aortic, it's going to be what? Diastolic. And they'll get you that. And I gave, also gave you these pearls because I know that half the people watching this are probably going to go to do a cardiology fellowship. This is going to be helpful uh, when you start your fellowship. And I put this here because talking about the mitral valve itself, there's always the option if indicated to repair or replace. And I want everyone to know on a board exam, just being very black and white, what is going to be the best option if they give you both the repair and replace option? It's repair, repair, repair. Reason why I put the advantages down here. There's better early and late survival. That's always a good thing. Better preservation of heart function. That's always good. Lower risk of stroke and endocarditis. That is amazing. And they don't need to be on blood thinners. So all these things are good. So if you get the option, always choose repair on the boards. So let's uh, talk about, we're almost done. Let's talk about this 86 year old woman is hospitalized for acute decompensated heart failure. Her medical history is significant for cardiovascular, for a CBA um, four years ago, hypertension, severe COPD and stage three CKD. She's got a lot of issues, kidneys, lung, heart, stroke. She underwent diuretic therapy with uh, Lasix furosemide overnight and is now resting comfortably. Her outpatient meds are an ACE inhibitor, statin, aspirin, spireva, which is a long-acting anticholinergic inhaler, and as needed albuterol. On exam, she's a febrile low blood pressure, uh, not tacky, not tachypnic, and her oxygen saturation is 90% on two liters nasal cannula. I'm sure this is a combination of her COPD, which is severe, and her decompensated heart failure. She has crackles noted on a lung exam. The CVP is elevated. An S1 is diminished. Uh, a grade three out of six holosystolic murmur, which is a mitral regurgitation murmur, and a diastolic rumble. So it sounds like there is a soft AR and MR. I like the way they gave both. A echocardiogram shows a flailed segment involving the posterior leaflet of the mitral valve 
resulting in severe regurgitation. So we're really focusing on the mitral valve here with an EF of 60%. Uh, cardiac and pulmonary surgical risks, of course, are estimated to be high for all her comorbidities listed above. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So it sounds like a symptomatic patient with severe mitral regurgitation. Well, uh, medical therapy, is that gonna make her feel better? Probably not, she sounds pretty severe. Let me see what the other choices are. Should we uh, crack the chest? I mean, I would say that sounds like a bad idea. You know what I mean? I'm all about, you know, fixing the valve, but she's not gonna replace it. You're not gonna repair it. Anything cracking the chest in her seems like bad. She's high surgical risk. I think we're kind of bullied into picking C, which is something called a mitra clip, a transcatheter mitral valve repair. And this is what I wanted to talk about. If you haven't noticed, you know, interventional radiology has a radiology, interventional cardiology, forgive me, heart doctors, uh, do have a lot of things they could do that are minimally invasive. So this is actually one of the board questions that I encountered not too long ago. So this is called the transcatheter mitral clip, mitral clip. And this is indicated for symptomatic patients with degenerative mitral regurgitation who are not surgical candidates. In any other person, you know you'd want to evaluate them for surgery. This patient can't do it. Look for mitral clip. So this is how big the mitral clip is. It's about the size of a dime. And this is what they do is they clip the two valve ends together. I make it seem really simple. They are very talented people who do this, but you should know this option for your board exams. So I gotta say, we spent a lot of time talking about cardiology. We went through all the high yield. So uh, this is time to catch up on your notes, review all the different charts you went together, and I'll see you for the next topic.